Welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're in season four of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different types of men about masculinity, sex and relationships, and how that contributes to our self-worth. Masked Man number 99 is the Accountability Act. He shares his story about how he followed a girl to hitchhike through Mexico, and nine years later, he's permanently living in Costa Rica. And after that beautiful relationship, he admits he still ended up cheating on her with, of course, a young intern and ultimately losing her trust forever. In this episode, we hear how he voluntarily took to social media and is now ex-partner to confess his failure and consulted her about what she thought would be a fair consequence for his actions. He says this was a way to take accountability and be the example he has not seen in other unfaithful men he doesn't aspire to be. And I appreciate how he gave her the space to really express herself in the situation, but it makes me ask the question, does the public need to be involved to achieve accountability? Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, so I had a pretty conventional uh, growing up in the Midwest, but wasn't ever really satisfied or wasn't like an obvious path, even though I was supposed to go and do something in the realm of like economics and finance and um, was was able to take a little bit of time off after university and went out west to Colorado area and uh, met a woman. <laughs> and I went to a very small school in the Midwest. And this was kind of my first time out of my comfort zone exploring. And she was basically like, well, do you want to go hitchhiking through Mexico with me to learn Spanish? And I was like, okay. And we did that. And we spent about a year hitchhiking from the U.S. border all the way to Costa Rica, volunteering along the way. That began what was a, a, a nine, ended up being a nine-year relationship. And we ended up at an education center in Costa Rica and became partners there and kind of dove into the sustainability, permaculture, natural building world, and, and over time built, built a little life at this particular um, education center. And so that was kind of the, the very short version of my journey down there. It was never a planned thing. I was definitely following a woman who was much braver than myself, much, let's say more more extroverted or at least more comfortable putting herself in uncomfortable situations. And, but yeah, here I am now, maybe, yeah, probably 12 years later, recently got my, my residency and permission to work in Costa Rica, which is a big step and uh, trying to make a life down there. Wow. That's such an awesome story. I never hear the man following the woman, you know, into the <laughs> wilderness and just doing this crazy thing. Usually it's the other way around if you imagine like Tarzan or some kind of fairy tale I was definitely following her she was leading I was way out of my comfort zone she was a very and still is adventurous individual who I think when she was 18 went and hitchhiked around Mexico on trains by herself just mm -hmm. as like as a, a short like a single line example that gives you an idea as an 18 year old like tiny little blonde girl and yeah, it was, uh, yeah, she kind of introduced me to this whole different way of being and moving through the world. And um, yeah, infinitely grateful for that. That's amazing. I mean, when you did that at such a young age, you were so impressionable. Do you ever think back to, oh my God, what would my life be like if I actually stayed in the US and followed this economics major life? 
Yeah, I mean, not not so much anymore, but especially early on, you're, you know, you're second guessing things and you're seeing your friends go and have jobs and they're making money. And, and, and obviously I came from a place of privilege to be able to do that, to be able to go and, you know, spend a year and many years then living in, in Central America. And there was a number of moments when almost hit the like escape button. We were, we were robbed of like everything in Mexico at one point. And like, <laughs> that would have been an easy out a few months into the trip and somehow kind of stuck through it went back to the States after a year and a half. We kind of went different routes, eventually came back together. Um, we've been separated now for about four years, maybe three years. And a couple of things happened though. I, I ended up having cancer at a really young age and it wasn't like a serious cancer, but it was still, you know, still cancer, yeah, surgery. And, and it was a, one of those moments where it was like, it was just a classic choice of like, hey, this is life, it's short. I have everything I need if I want to go and do something alternative, like support from parents, a little money in the bank. Um, and it was a, a really good reminder that there's no way I'm going to go work inside in an office. And, and, I, and I didn't need to, and I haven't done that since. Yeah. Can I ask, when did you get cancer? Like, how old were you? I would have been, I think, 23 or 24. Yeah. I believe so. And I'm 35 now. So it's been a while. It hasn't been part of my life. I was very fortunate. I caught it really early. Um, it was testicular, which is a really curable form of cancer that does happen a lot to young men. Didn't have to do chemo or radiation therapy, although there was, you know, different opinions on that. And I chose not to. And so it was, was fortunate. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if you can think of yourself back in like your early twenties and have a curiosity for life and then have that mortality in your face like what how did you feel at that time yeah it's hard to it's hard to look back I don't think I was as self-reflective as I as I try to be now and you know, I immediately think of the end of one of my favorite poems by Wendell Berry where he um, you know, the, the last line of the poem is practice resurrection and we used to be faced with these moments of not necessarily life or death but rites of passage and things like that where our old selves would, would die and we would move through that. We don't have that so much anymore. And I think for me, looking back at that moment, I think what I really felt in the time was I was out in Colorado, just starting work out in the mountains, like a pretty rugged job. The doctor was like, well, you should probably go home and be with your family and, you know, get an oncologist back home. And my family's come from the other side of the United States. And I remember this distinct moment, like if I go back home, like I'm going to slip into those same like habits and patterns of, of high school and college that there was nothing healthy, nothing interesting. It was very conventional. And I, I would have almost assuredly just slipped into finding, you know, some sort of corporate ish job. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I knew if I stayed out in Colorado and like kind of did this a little bit more on my own, I had lots of support that I had the chance to keep exploring this alternative path that I, I somewhat randomly found myself on. And I remember that feeling more than anything and a certain stubbornness of like, no, I'm doing this out here. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care. Like I'm in this like little FEMA trailer for work. Like, I don't care. And that, that's probably what I remember the most thinking about and feeling very strongly about. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all relate to that in your early twenties of that stubbornness of like, no, this is the life I've chosen. I got to commit yeah. to it. I'm all in. Exactly. And exactly, of course yeah. there's all the benefits to that. 
what about having testicular cancer? Like, did that affect how you felt about yourself? I'm unsure how much sexuality means for you after interviewing a lot of men, you know, like the whole performative aspect of that. So there would be some ego wounding if, if you say in terms of um, having cancer in that region. Yeah. I don't think it really ever affected me. I was always assured everything was supposed to work. You know, the body has two of many things for this reason, right? Yeah, it's a good question. And I I don't know if I've ever really thought about it. And yeah, everything worked. So I've never really worried about it. And yeah, there's certainly been times when I've been with partners that I probably haven't told them I had cancer and only have one testicle and maybe they've discovered that and but there's never been any like surprise moments I don't you know it's not uh the testicles aren't like some spectacularly beautiful thing in general a little weird looking right um, I, I mean in my opinion and so I I don't I don't think yeah I don't think it's ever affected me no that's awesome yeah because I think I just saw a post on Instagram recently and it was about, oh, before you have sex, like, let's talk about how you think about sex. And this is specifically for a woman audience. Most women are afraid of having sex for the first time with a new partner because uh, they're afraid of how they might smell or how they might look. And yeah. I mean, genitals don't look great. <laughs> they're not supposed yeah. to, they're just supposed to look a little bit weird. And I don't imagine any man having this conversation of like, oh, you know, my testicles might look funny. I'm afraid to go see this girl. You know, that's never yeah. a conversation. So I think it's really interesting that women are thinking about this so much more before even going into the act. Yeah, it's always actually been probably more of just like an interesting life story for mm-hmm. me. And, and, and that comes from a place of pure luck of catching this thing early and not having to go through any like, like deeply traumatic healing. Like the hardest part about the whole process was probably calling my mom, like after going to the doctor the first time, like quite like really. And then, you know, the stress of follow-up tests and things like that. And so- I don't think it ever became that defining for me. And it, it's not something that I really think about that much, um, except in these like <laughs> random flashback conversations like we're having now. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I'd like to think that it's kind of similar to breast cancer. I mean, that that's as common as it is, but there yeah. is way more of an appearance focus, I guess, because mm-hmm. it's more public, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Well, maybe this will get it in my head more. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) No, I don't want. (laughs) So this podcast is all about unpacking our understanding of masculinity in today's modern world. So what does that look like to you? Do you have any more traditional influences of what that definition is to you, whether they're physical people or idols in your life? And do you seek to change that definition? of how you see it today? Okay, yeah, it's an interesting question. I feel that when I think about like mentors and men in my life, you know, I, I, I almost feel like there's like a line and I, I'm really fortunate to have my father and, and my brother really as like two men that I feel are at like the highest integrity as individuals that I, you know, when I come back home which I'm, I happen to be at home right now. My brother's about to get married. And I've been thinking about this because I'm preparing a best man speech. <laughs> like, I'm just like really proud of both of them. They're just like such good human beings. And I, and I really, it's probably one of my favorite things about coming home. And then on this flip side, I've, I, I was in a fraternity 
in university. So although I live a very perhaps radical life now by many standards, I, I was in a very conventional route by, by other standards. Um, and so there's whole conversations in there around masculinity. And that was like a weird and wonderful experience that might be worth talking about. But what I really think about is when I started traveling, I started getting involved in the permaculture world. And I looked at the men that were in my life, especially upon reflection, they were horrible mentors. Like they just like did not embody anything that I want to be, and and there was consequences of that for me, mostly in the form of that the partner that I mentioned. Like we separated because I ended up having an affair, and like in no way, shape, or form am I blaming that on the male mentors in my life. And at the same time, the main male figures in my life at the time did not treat women very well in different ways and had also histories of like extramarital affairs and since that which probably happened around four years ago when we separated I feel very particular about male friends in my life and I and I live in in Latin America and so there's a bit of a culture of very casual machista culture jokes and memes and things like that that are very sexist and I just I can't deal with it like at all and, and as soon as like a man uh somebody i work with or a student or, or or whatever like enters in my life and like cool all good we can be friends but as soon as i run up against that type of energy i like i have to cut it immediately i have no interest in it and and i've been fortunate to develop some really close friendships with men um that i feel super supported by and that we can talk about these and we do talk about these things um uh, but when I think about masculinity and, and how it's evolved in my life and my exploration of that and, and my particular failure to my former partner, um, it, was, it was really noticeable at that time. There really, really no men in my life, you know, besides family members, but they were so far away. They weren't part of my daily life. Were men that I could like look up to at all that I feel like I could go into a conversation with about my struggles, um, what I was, you know, what wasn't working in the relationship. And I don't even know if I could have done that at the time either. But yeah, that's kind of, that's where my mind goes with that uh, kind of nuanced question. Mm -hmm. I think environment has a lot to play. And not only the environment that you're physically in, but the environment of the types of people that you surround yourself with. What are your thoughts? Because I think we you're bringing up two things as, you know, the environment of being away from your family, right? Which you would be more comfortable to talk to versus more strange people, adding in the layer of the cultural aspects of this is the norm. And then you're actively working against the norm because you're the one that's not from here. And it's interesting. I've been battling this a little bit with myself now that I've been in Mexico for an extended mm -hmm. period of time. And I mean, if you go across like Cancun and Playa, they're just going to be like, hey, want a Mexican boyfriend? And it's jokey. It's fine. It's whatever. And you can just get off the main strip and go into local Mexico if you want and escape that whole tourist vibe. But what I've been noticing a lot is if I ever enter any conservative neighborhoods, the men will approach me and say, where's your husband? You know, and mm -hmm. it might even come as a concern as in like, you're this lone woman walking by herself, like, where is your husband out of concern? Or, you know, this is my, my opportunity. And when I would talk about this, what I would get as, as a comeback is like, you know, that I'm being racist, that I'm thinking this way. 
whether or not they're concerned or they want to just talk to a pretty woman or whatever the situation is. But I would think, well, if I was a man or someone that you're not attracted to, this isn't a requirement for me to enter your country. But suddenly I'm being racist by entering this country because you find me attractive and you find that you deserve my attention. So that's how I'm looking at it now that I, I understand the, the cultural aspect of this is the norm for them, but you coming in as an outsider, like how have you felt in navigating around that, finding people that are on the same wavelength as you, and then also still respecting the space that you're at? Yeah, it's tricky. Like probably today where I run into it the most is we, in, in our work, we have a lot of work crews that we manage and um, they're almost always come from rural communities, lower education, or, or you know, close to no education, super hard workers. I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of these men and, and you know, it's during breaks or whatever, they're pulling up like, I guess, TikTok, which I've never been on. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's like just over-sexualized memes. And sometimes I don't even understand what they're saying. My, my Spanish is quite good. And they're just making sexual jokes. And there's like these moments of like, cool, you kind of want to build camaraderie with the crew. And, you know, you're like they saw the girl you're on a date with that you walked around, you know, the farm last week or whatever. And, and like, oh, who's that? And like, oh, this girl I met, blah, blah, blah. And so it's this really uncomfortable balance where you're suddenly realizing you're like in the mix of, yeah, just like sexual jokes that, you know, we might classify as harmless. And, you know, there's certainly the type of jokes that can lead to things that aren't harmless, right? And that's a tricky thing to navigate because there is this cultural piece and it's, these aren't like educated individuals that have had these conversations and, and as, as great as these, these men are in so many ways, their emotional literacy is close to zero. I can't imagine what their sexual lives are like, the amount of infidelity, children out of wedlock, all, all these things that, you know, are common in rural Latin America communities. And if there were jokes that like my friends from college were saying, like, I wouldn't put up with it, right? It's just like, get the fuck out of here. But I'm probably, I, I, don't, I don't say that with them. It's just like, all right, they're doing their thing. You kind of laugh and that's a really uncomfortable space that I find myself in. Not, not a lot, but you know, enough that it, it's a real thing. Um, beyond that, like I'm really fortunate to have just a strong friend group in, in Costa Rica and like the, the Costa Rican women that I hang out with, they're all, you know, they're all educated and they don't put up with shit anymore. Like we were talking the other day, kind of pre this call of how like you were saying you're, you're, Mexican lady friends like they they don't want to date Mexican guys anymore they won't put up with it anymore and so there's a strong stem of that at least in the bubble that I exist in in Costa Rica that I appreciate and you know you try to support as best you can yeah 100% like I've been fortunate to meet a lot of single independent Mexican women that are just carving a life for themselves and challenging the status quo of what the stereotypical Latino culture is going to be like. But I see it as a growing fight because I don't see it on the, the male side of that being adopted. And that's the struggle that I'm curious about. If you were ever to experience things like that, like being a man, I think you're in the space of change. So when you're in those circles and you're speaking to guys that 
whatever, they might be jokey, but then you want to fit in, like, where is the line that you cross and how would you help support the change so that at least it's a little bit more along the same lines of where these more contemporary women are in terms of just fairness and, and openness in general. Like I think of a particular farm crew, like some of these guys are, you know, they're 55, 60 years old, like, like leaving this small town is a big thing for them. Like, I, I don't know what I can do. Like, I don't know if it's worth my energy. And there's also like some young guys in the crew that are like 22, 23 that have joined. And yeah, I would fucking say something to them. So in that context, I, I it feels very individual to me and like the relationship built. It's, and it's a little uncomfortable as they view me as a boss in this particular context that I'm referring to. So, so navigating that, but there does feel like an age piece. And, and then, yeah, I mean, anybody that I would view as like a contemporary, like my Costa Rican male friends. Yeah. That's where I would feel very comfortable saying something and, um, and, and have, and I can think of a moment where some Costa Rican friends like drop the N word and, and it was just like what and and they got an argument like you can't say that and like oh you know we're not from the U.S. it's like no I don't give a shit like like you just need to eliminate that from your language like you know think of a better word like be more creative like get out of here and I think of two examples of that exact situation that happened and and yeah I hope uh I hope they don't use that word anymore yeah and I think there needs to be that discussion you know I'm really curious in terms of how you think of what is an appropriate consequence versus a punishment. Because I think in a lot of women's groups, we talk more about punishments than we talk about consequences, even though we want to see consequences. We want to see the change and, and people to start realizing to do something differently. So I don't know what your thoughts are, because if it comes from a woman, it automatically sounds like a punishment. And mm. also you can grant permission against that one woman unless it, you know, adds up to a, a certain amount of women. If you're in a position of power, if you're like their boss or something, then I think there's, there's more that you can offer in terms of a consequence. But how do you visualize that in both like a casual setting, what consequences are versus punishment? How would you encourage that? Because all of our actions do require consequences for those behaviors, but depends on how we look at it and how we deliver them. Yeah, that's interesting. Like in a casual setting in particular, I mean, I, I think a lot depends is if it's like a repeat thing. Um, and, and so like these, the, the friends I mentioned that use the N word, there's one friend in particular I'm, I'm very close to. And if I heard him say that again, you know, let's say it again. If he said it a third time, yeah, it would, well, it, it's a little different because he also works with us. Um, so he's kind of an employee now. Maybe he wasn't in that when it first started. But yeah, at a certain point, it would be like, hey man, we're like, keep doing this, like we're done. And I I think feel pretty comfortable doing that. I don't think there's a shortage of like great people to spend time with. I'm also a bit of an introvert, so I don't, like, I, um, I don't know if that changes. It feels a little weird to say, but it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need all these people in my life always. I think the idea of accountability is really tricky. So for example, when, when I had my affair, it was with an intern and program that I was managing and my, my former partner and I spent a lot of time talking about like, well, what's fair accountability for this failure? And what, what does this mean? Should I never teach again? Should I completely step away from working with students? Um, 
financial accountability to, to her for all these reasons. And I doubt four years later that she's still satisfied with the accountability that I, I tried to take. You'd have to ask her, <laughs> but it was, a, you know, it was deep, deep conversations for long times and I, it never felt clear. It felt very much like a no-win situation. Like even though I was the person who, who very much failed, this was all on my shoulders. Um, it felt like there was almost nothing I could do to reach full accountability for what I did to that individual. And so I think how I've approached it since then is like, well, that individual's not in my life anymore. It hasn't been for years. And, and fortunately we live in different parts of the world. So it's easier to not be in each other's lives. And, and so I just try to be accountable to the women that are in my life now and, and have successes and failures at that. Nothing is grave and um, like integrity shattering as an affair. Yeah, those are some of my thoughts that drifted out of the, the casual accountability, but that, that's kind of what I was, um, that's what I was thinking about with that question. You know, that's interesting when you talk about accountability that way, that you tried to gain all of the accountability for the behavior that you made. And, you know, I, I assume that is out of your character and how you think of yourself and what integrity means to you, that you want to have full accountability to fulfill that, that action. But my opinion, looking at it from a woman's point of view, is that you'll never be able to have that full accountability, right? And I don't think it is in your power or in your right to have that, right? It's just however she feels about it is going to be however she feels. So obviously the result or the ultimate consequence of this is just to lose this person in your life. If you know that that's the case, why bother looking for accountability anyway? Because you're just going to lose the person anyway. And I think this mm. is the casual approach that a lot of men will take because there is no real consequence or the assumed consequence is just to lose them. And it's okay. There's an abundance of other people to find in the world. You know, why bother going back and gaining your own integrity? Because that is a personal thing by trying to adopt whatever that accountability is. So two questions. How do you communicate that to other people, that other young men that might be thinking, oh, what's the point? Why bother having accountability if I'm never going to get the girl back or you know, I'm never going to get the outcome that I want out of this? And if not, if I'm still going to go ahead and, and do this virtuous act, what does integrity mean to you? And how can it remain um, restored for you? Okay, yeah. These are great questions. Well, I think for the first thing, what I would say to other people is like, in the end, it's just, it's just kind of what you, it's, it's just you. It's like your life, it's your choice. This person's going to walk away. And, and I was in a situation where I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to win this person back. Like our, our relationship needed to end a few years before this was just like the outcome of an inability to end a relationship. And so I think how I've approached it since then is like, well, that individual's not in my life anymore. It hasn't been for years. And, and fortunately we live in different parts of the world. So it's easier to not be in each other's lives. And, and so I just try to be accountable to the women that are in my life now and, and have successes and failures at that. Nothing is grave and um, like integrity shattering as an affair. 
yeah, those are some of my thoughts that drifted out of the the casual accountability. But that that's kind of what I was. Uh, that's what I was thinking about with that question. You know, that's interesting when you talk about accountability that way. That you tried to gain all of the accountability for the behavior that you made, and you know, I I assume that is out of your character and how you think of yourself and what integrity means to you that you want to have full accountability to fulfill that that action but my opinion looking at it from a woman's point of view is that you'll never be able to have that full accountability right and I don't think it is in your power or in your right to have that right it's just however she feels about it is going to be however she feels so obviously the result or the ultimate consequence of this is just to lose this person in your life if you know that that's the case, why bother looking for accountability anyway? Because you're just going to lose the person anyway. And I think this mm-hmm. is the casual approach that a lot of men will take because there is no real consequence or the assumed consequence is just to lose them. And it's okay. There's an abundance of other people to find in the world. You know, why bother going back and gaining your own integrity? Because that is a personal thing by trying to adopt whatever that accountability is. So two questions. How do you communicate that to other people, that other young men that might be thinking, well, what's the point? Why bother having accountability if I'm never going to get the girl back or you know, I'm never going to get the outcome that I want out of this? And if not, if I'm still going to go ahead and, and do this virtuous act, what does integrity mean to you? And how can it remain um, restored for you? Okay, yeah. These are great questions. Well, I think for the first thing, what I would say to other people is like in the end, it's just, it's just kind of what you, it's, it's just you. It's like your life, it's your choice. This person's going to walk away. And, and I was in a situation where I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to win this person back. Like our, our relationship needed to end a few years before. This was just like the outcome of an inability to end a relationship. Yeah. It's interesting. Like And I think part of that was just having enough strong people in my life that called me out on it when it was the moment. I had also seen with my mentors that I mentioned earlier, these men that I was close to, how they seemed to take no accountability. I I knew I was was already at a point where I wanted nothing to do with these men when this happened, and yet I still followed in the same pattern. And so I, I think I had the example in front of me of what I didn't want. I didn't want to be that. And so it was trying to do the, the opposite. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Because I, yeah, I, I never thought of it like that and that you could just walk away and just like brush it off and move on. And there's, there's more people out there. That's a heavy weight though. You think it's a heavy weight? Like it's going <laughs> to linger with you? I don't know. For me, it it still does, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's the greatest failure of my life, like undoubtedly. And and I hope nothing tops it. So did it help you lift the weight by asking her what she believed was a deserved consequence for those actions? Yeah, we talked about it a lot. Yeah. And she was, you know, patient enough and, and brave enough to like sit in those conversations and still love me enough to participate in that with me. And uh, I'm just like forever grateful for that. Yeah. Were you seeking forgiveness? If you weren't trying to get back together or solve it, you know, mm-hmm. was, was it more just that you would be seen better in her eyes? 
I think it was that I just never, ever want to feel that again, to hurt somebody like that again. And, and this seems like the obvious way to start that process. I had, again, seen these other men, one in particular, like repeatedly have intramarital affairs and, and nothing came of it, nothing changed. And there's no public aspect to it. And so we decided jointly to basically make what happened public. Like there's, there's posts on social media and I you know, told my family immediately and a number of close friends and students. And, and I made the decision to like I, I wanted it to be public because I wanted the people close in my life to continue to hold me accountable in the future. And so I think from my perspective, I was thinking about the future. And so, and so maybe that's the advice for somebody. It's like, all right, you fucked up. You don't want that again. Like you can sit in how you feel right now. And you know, you just hurt this person who in theory was like your best friend and the most important person in your life. And you just devastated them. Like surely we can all agree you don't want to ever do that again. And so how do you never do that again? And that's probably starting to work toward the the accountability piece and, and trying to find integrity again. That's interesting that the choice you took was a public shaming. Where did where would that come across? Because I mean, if it was a relationship between the two of you and it's mm-hmm. an intimate situation, it could be solved between the two of you. So by extending that to others, is that just a way to exemplify what accountability can look like? Do you think that accountability requires other people to solidify that accountability? These are such great questions. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They really are. I think that does accountability need like a public piece? It probably doesn't. Like I can, I can certainly imagine a scenario where accountability occurs in a private space. Given that I work with students, I think there's a a certain responsibility to students, like young women who who might come to me as a teacher, view me as a mentor, to know that I failed one of those students as well, the other person that I had this affair with, right? And so I think that's important. I think a lot of ways in our particular scenario, it was a response to seeing this other male figure never take any accountability, especially any public accountability for his actions in a way that he probably should have. And what we did was perhaps unique. And it was all tense. Like it wasn't like, there wasn't anything pretty about it. And it wasn't like, we weren't like shouting at each other or anything like that, but we did like look over each other's statements that we were going to share to social media to be like, does, does, is this accurate about what happened? And we would agree and then we'd share that. And it was always important to her and, and to me, but obviously she was the one vocalizing it that she wanted to be able to have a voice in the story of, of what happened and not just lose it in miscellaneous apologies and, and, and things like that. And so that's, that's kind of how it formed. And she's since written about it and, you know, amongst other, other things. And I was just really fortunate to have somebody who was already somewhat educated in these conversations and had been working to educate me and, you know, excited and open about that. It wasn't entire one-way street. 
and despite all of that, I still had an affair and still failed this person and still slept with uh, an intern. Like, even though, you know, I could talk about gender roles and, and power imbalances and <laughs> yeah. like you can see my face right now. Like, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? And, I think you know, it's part yeah. of all of us participating in a, this society and, you know, sucking at communication and being poor at expressing our needs. And I'm completely, you know, I'm in that with everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's an amazing example to show how we're all human and fallible in all of these normal ways that these things are going to happen. I think it's interesting that you kind of followed in her lead to express this information. And whenever I am thinking back to a wrong that has been done to me and the apology I receive is never enough because especially if it's like a sexual assault, Um, let's say like a violent uh, sexual assault, men go to other men to figure out how to solve the situation. How do we fix it? With no consultation with other women on how they are actually feeling. So I can see how she might appreciate that she had a voice in that conversation to express the hurt and the pain. And I think that's the real feeling that you get to carry on and think, okay, how do I have accountability for all of this weight that you're saying? Because otherwise, you just look at the act and you can easily figure out quantifiably how you want to solve that act or make it better, right? It's those feelings that are not being expressed. So in your experience, how would you encourage others to have that conversation of maybe it's an apology conversation or it's a conversation about feelings of like, okay, I understand I've made a mistake and I can't change that mistake, can't change things from what I've done already. I can move forward now. We can move forward or we cannot. It's totally up to you. But, you know, let's sit down here and let me hear what those emotions are because maybe there's even more emotions that I was unaware of. There's the general emotion of like, you have broken somebody's trust. You have been disloyal. You know, the general roles that you have established in this relationship have been broken. But now there's these additional feelings of like someone's self-worth, of someone's insecurities, you know, someone's past insecurities those are those deeper layers that haven't been expressed before. So I think that's important to have regardless of it being sprouted from a mistake or just in general, you know, like you could just not say good morning to somebody and, and that could spring up all of those emotions. Yeah. I think what you're, you're hitting at is it's, it's like a daily practice, right? Like if you wait to practice I mean whatever like nonviolent communication as a specific tool for conflict resolution like that there's all these tools out there right like if you wait to use these tools to improve your emotional literacy you know the day after you fuck up like well you're gonna be pretty shitty at it and I think that was the only reason that I can probably talk about this today without feeling like immense shame is because I had been practicing that to some degree, you know, not, not like a huge thing. And, and so I think that's like, it's kind of like we were just talking about before this call, like you go into business with somebody, you need an exit strategy. Like, even though they're your best friend or whatever, it's like at some point, something might happen, likely will happen. And, and you guys will need to go in different directions. And, and so you plan for that scenario, mostly because you want to maintain your friendship and you've, 
you know, maybe it's the same idea with the relationship that like, even though you don't plan for separation or uh, God forbid, a, an affair, you plan for those stressful moments by practicing communication all the time. And, and I, I, again, there's all sorts of tools. I'm very poorly versed in these tools. I do my little things and, and, and a little bit of work. And so I think that's one thing that really jumps to mind. And then I think for men, the other piece that's just been essential for me in the last few years is just building strong relationships with women and, and talking about these things and not being afraid to talk about, like have this conversation we're having right now that causes me no fear. Like I could get on stage and talk about this. Um, and that's probably what I would advise people is, is just talk about it more. Yeah. Were you afraid before to have these conversations? Like, how did you grow into this, to this level? I don't, yeah, I don't even know if I had these conversations before. Really? Like yeah, I mean, a little bit. But they were just, you know, maybe we started, started having conversations like this in the second half of our relationship, but that was also when things would start getting strained. And so you have triggers and things aren't working and you're, you're, you're already in the, the downswing of it a little bit. I think for me, it took a great cracking open, which is unfortunate because that involves somebody getting hurt, right? Yeah, I think it really took that. And then talking about it a lot. Yeah, some of my friends are probably sick about talking about these things. <laughs> I mean, that's good. And I think it's also important to have these conversations outside of a romantic relationship, you know, just to have them in general with all different types of relationships that you have, whether they're work-related or you guys are related in a, in a hobby or something, just to see the difference of perspective. And I think that's the most valuable thing I've gotten out of the show where, you know, I'm not dating these hundred guys, but I get to see their perspective and everyone is different. Whereas if you're so tightly knit in your one intimate relationship, you only have that one person's perspective. And that means the ultimate, you know, that's the only word that you get. Yeah. Right? We, we were in a very isolated living situation, you know, it wasn't like a strong, like codependent relationship, but we, our lives were intertwined and we didn't have a lot of outside friends because of how our life was set up. And today I have like my closest male friend who's also my business partner is another individual of just like the utmost integrity. He still writes like thank you notes and mails them to people. Um, and then, yeah, I have women that have come to my life in different ways that are just close friends and that I feel that I can express anything to and that are advice back. And ooh, I don't know what I would do without that now. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, and I had zero, like close to zero of that before. I mean, really zero, I would say is, is the right to, to quantify that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there needs to be a great loss for you to start changing your ways or was there another way that you think you can move forward? I think I needed a great loss. Mm -hmm. I don't know what other people need. Yeah, I thought about this a lot and it sucks to say that out loud. And I, I also think it gets back to these, you know, looking at society we live in and we don't have these other types of loss, these rites of passages and you lose your, your childhood or doesn't exist anymore and so you don't have these other moments for that you're not challenged in any way at least I, I certainly wasn't 
So I think I, I think I needed the great loss. That sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It sucks because this, my former partner had to suffer because of that. And yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say, right? Um, to verbalize that out loud and actually admit that, yeah, sometimes we need that huge knock in the face, right? Like it's just part of how we process things. My last question to you before we wrap up is now that you've experienced this relationship and you've seen your mistakes, you've tried to change your ways. How do you look at what an ideal new relationship is going to look like for you today? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I know an ideal. (laughs) I think that like, I don't know. I, I, it's maybe it's just like sounds cliche, but just being so straightforward from the beginning and developing a degree of comfort that's really high for these conversations and not putting like huge expectations on an individual that they're going to like hold up your whole world. Maybe you get to that place with somebody and it works and you do hold up each other's worlds. I suspect that can still be a really beautiful, important, powerful thing, but especially starting off, at least for me, it's been like suave, like, like slow, keeping things light and yeah, developing a comfort in these conversations as much as possible from the beginning. I hear that as a very careful process that you're taking <laughs> with, with a slow progress and, and making sure to, to leave out any expectations. But what about your intentions? What about what you want? Yeah, what do I want right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel increasingly ready for uh, like partnership. I've been dating somebody for like 18 months and kind of like what I would describe as like open dating, um, although I haven't really seen other people. Part of that might be the fact that I live in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which I like. <laughs> and yeah, so it's kind of been exploring different ways to relate with this person in particular. It's been eight, 18 months, maybe even longer now, a month or week. And yeah, and it's not it's not perfect or easy. And you know, with conversations of we're second guessing and there's fear and actually somebody else coming to visit me soon. And I'm not particularly interested in like a polyamorous world um at least like when I really think about partnership and long term and I kind of find myself exploring that at the same time and so in this particular case there's kind of two women entering my life and both know about each other like I'll probably both send them this podcast (laughs) Um, like I don't know and yeah but there's a cautiousness Mm -hmm. for sure but it's also new that my first partner was really my only partner so I'm, I don't know, and we entered into this world of like, you know, we started our relationship literally hitchhiking across the US-Mexico border, living in a tent together for like a year. Yeah, that's awesome. So I don't know, I, I really don't know how you do it in a more normal way where, you know, you take all of the things that you've accumulated in your life. I'm not 22 anymore, I'm 35. And um, like, how do you combine accumulated hopes and dreams and possessions with somebody else. And I, I don't really know how to do that. And so I'm just, I'm cautious about how that works. Yeah, I think that's where my caution lies. Are you, I'm also excited. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. you more cautious of not hurting these women or are you more cautious of not being hurt after seeing that much hurt? No, I'm terrified. I, I like, the, the worst thing ever would be to hurt one of these women. Yeah. Yeah. 
so that's the reason for the extreme caution and and slow progress and yeah over communication yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think completely um yeah i would say i'm very fearful of of hurting somebody i understand that it's yeah i probably will hurt somebody like if i give you try to love and yeah and because you can't control that too like we could communicate as best as possible and the day could arrive where i decide i want to do something different and stop seeing somebody and and even though our communication's been spotless from day one that person could still feel hurt like that's not i can't control that too so it's a fun game yeah i mean the way i think about it is if you're constantly thinking about avoiding something that's what you're going to do right so it's always like oh i want to hurt this person i'm going (laughs) to ultimately hurt them in the most ridiculous way that i can't even foreshadow but i think it also kind of removes a lot of compassion that you give to yourself right because you will ultimately get hurt through your Mm -hmm. hurting you know there's also so much to gain in the learning and the whole process in totality right in that journey itself so I hope you give yourself some compassion because you've done a lot and you don't have to, you know, forever torture yourself in that fear of. Yeah. I, it doesn't feel tortured. It it doesn't feel tortured, but it, Mm -hmm. it, uh, but it is real. Um, and some express like, like, like the most important thing for me is that this, you know, I don't hurt you as an individual. I hope you didn't just curse me though. You know, I feel like you just like really set me up there, man. (laughs) no, but it is just more of a mental state, right? To not think that way. So yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I want to wrap up with a couple of questions. What is the best example of integrity that you've seen? I don't know. That's a hard question. The best example of integrity. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Yeah. I'm going to get back to you on that one. I'll send you a text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because you spoke about integrity a lot, but then how do you yeah. exemplify it in a literal, tangible moment or experience? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting word. You know, we, we can talk about all these things and communication and all these things that we're, you, you talk about. It's like, how do you live that? Like, how do you put in practice? Um, and... And I, and I think about the, the life I live now and my relationship with women now, friends and, and, and partners. And I think about my former partner, like what would she think of it? And, and going back to that, the, the idea of accountability and apologies and like, in the end, I, I can't do anything. Like I'll never be fully accountable in her eyes. And that's fine. Like, like I don't think there's any apology I could give that would fully rectify anything so all I can do is like move forward with the people that are in my life now and I think integrity is perhaps trying to bridge those two things I don't know if that makes sense it's a hard question Mm -hmm. yeah because I think integrity is often assumed as a characteristic right but then how do you demonstrate that unless it's like a daily thing that they do or embody somehow versus actions but then actions make the character so you know it just interesting to to think about i'm going to ask you another one what is an example that you can remember it's most memorable of uh a way that you receive love from somebody Mm. Mm. 
I mean, I, the thing that comes to my mind is the, the current woman that I'm, I'm seeing that I mentioned that we're kind of in this open dating thing. And I think just the trust and to, to like receive that trust from somebody after having broken somebody's trust to receive that again is like, it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, that makes me tear up. I cry really easy. So mm. I'm starting to tear up right now. <laughs> How was her trust given to you? I think through words and patience and permission to explore this different form of relating that was new to both of us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like an act of grace. Yeah, right? it's a nice way to put it. Mm. Okay. What is the best way that you'd prefer to receive an apology? Mm. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting one. I don't feel like I've been in a situation where, well, no, that's not true. I, I have been, I have had moments where I deserved an apology from somebody. I can think of a specific example. I think the best way is actions, changing actions. Like I've received an email, I've received a hug, I've received words. And this particular individual I can think of in this scenario maybe has changed, but I have some doubts. And so I think the best way to receive an apology is probably some combination of time and actions okay. merging together. So like there needs to be proof on top of those words that are said. I think that's a good way to, to put it. Also, like, you know, don't send me a PowerPoint <laughs> of like all the good things you've done or how you change. Like, I don't need to know anything about this person's life anymore. I don't want to know. Like, I just, I just want to move on and, and I have, and like, I don't know if apology is that important to me in this case, but this, but I also don't have very many examples in my life of where I would like really want an apology from somebody. I can really think of this one moment. That's it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't feel super, super uh, experienced in, in needing or wanting to receive an apology. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting your answer because for most of this conversation, it was about you giving an apology and, you know, how, how to express that and to remove those feelings of shame and guilt that you had and, you know, in your inability to express, okay, what would that apology look like is probably where she might've been sitting as well. Right. Cause you don't want a PowerPoint either and you don't want to give a PowerPoint. So. Yeah. Like they're probably intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, my last question to you is, is there anything topic-wise that might've jumped out to you today that you'd like to invite another man to elaborate on in another episode on the show? Mm. I mean, I would love to hear, yeah, more, more thoughts on accountability and how do people approach that? It It was something that I, like I really tried and like you said, uh, like uh, there was, there's never, there was no line that I could cross that would make me okay. Like you've leveled up, you're 100% full of accountability. And yeah, I'd be really curious to hear how other men have have dealt with that, or or made the decision to just say fuck it. Like I don't, I'm just moving on. Um, kind of like we talked about, and yeah, I'd be curious to hear more on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's also just a, a common masculine trait to want to fix things and solve things, which means that there must be a solution. There must be an X to the Y to the Z. And in these more nuanced scenarios, you're like, oh no, there isn't a, an easy 
bolt that's going to fix this. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Precisely. <laughs> This interview made me remember how many men out there are more afraid of hurting than they are in being hurt. I really enjoyed the conversation on consequence and punishment, and I hope this provokes some more thoughts on your end and how we can bring in feelings more than actions, because that's the sticky stuff that really matters, in my opinion. Make sure to subscribe, and if you'd like to be on the show or know someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram, and I'll see you next week with the last episode of The 100 Masked Men.